You are listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Kira McKinley goes over campus news with updates on the final ASCSU meeting of the semester. Then, Ellie Shannon covers local news with details on the death of a hiker in Loveland. Coda Babcock goes over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies. And we hear from the Soylent Green podcast about a cover crop experiment in Western Colorado. After that, I go over information on the future of abortion access and racial justice efforts in pediatric medicine. After that, we hear from Anton Schindler about the legacy of racial segregation in baseball. Eliza Grotar goes over updates in CSU sports, including details on Rams football. And then we hear from Marie Tanksley's podcast recommendations in the Mastercast. To conclude today's show, I explain updates on technology with details on Russian troops stealing farm equipment in Ukraine. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Kira McKinley reporting your campus news for Tuesday, May 3rd. American Associates of University professors held a rally earlier today at the Oval to demand fair pay at CSU. They said, quote, 40 percent of CSU faculty teach 68 percent of undergrad credit hours. Due to unfair salary practices, they cannot cover their living expenses. Admin professionals and graduate student workers also do not make salaries that match high tuition fees and growing living expenses, end quote. In other news, the 51st Senate of the Associated Students of Colorado State University had their last session earlier this past week. In this session, they swore in the new vice president and president and the new speaker of the Senate as well. Former President Christian Dykeson had some inspiring parting words. He said, quote, I believe that the hallmark of student government is to ensure that every student's voice is heard and the governance of our community. And that's a challenge that you all will have moving forward. Never underestimate the power of love and dignity and respect and his ability to unite 30,000 students, according to Piper Russell of the Collegian. Thank you for listening to my CSU Campus News Updates. I'm Kira McKinley, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is Ellie Shannon with your local news. Fort Collins Police Services have arrested two people after a six-year-old was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Earlier in April, police responded to a call after six-year-old Roy Summers had shot himself. Summers was taken to a nearby hospital, but he died because of his injuries. Police shared information last week, and according to Molly Bohannon of the Coloradoan, they believe Summers' mother left the gun out in their home the day he died. It was in an area that was frequently accessible to the mother's children, and Summers later picked up the gun and fired it. A fallen hiker was found dead in Devil's Backbone open space in Loveland. The patient was sadly pronounced deceased on scene after several life-saving efforts. Loveland Police Services said that the death is not believed to be suspicious, according to Loveland reporter Harold. Colorado Governor Jared Polis is reviewing a petition calling for outside DNA testing in the case of John Benet Ramsey. John Benet Ramsey was murdered in her home over 25 years ago in Boulder. After investigating over 21,000 tips, emails, and letters, the case has still not been solved. Over 1,000 DNA samples have also been analyzed during the Ramsey investigation. According to CBS Denver, new advances in DNA technology may make it possible for police to find the murderer. As of March, Boulder police have been hosting meetings with federal, state, and local agencies working on this case and in consultation with DNA experts from around the country. 
This collaboration is set to continue. Thanks for listening to your local news updates. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mount Review this Thursday at four in the afternoon for our last episode of the semester. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is KCSU on 90.5 FM. We'll be right back. Hey, this is DJ Festus, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of campus and local news with Kira McKinley and Ellie Shannon, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen back. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports over 8,400 cases of COVID-19 since reporting started in May 2020. Seven new cases were reported yesterday among students, with two new cases reported among staff and faculty at CSU. Masks are no longer required on CSU's Fort Collins campus, with the exception of some buildings, like the CSU Health Network. Larimer County reports low COVID-19 community transmission levels, along with over 81,000 COVID-19 cases and 487 deaths. The county's seven-day case rate is around 135 cases per 100,000 residents, based on data reported this morning. 7% of tests administered in Larimer County came back positive in the past week, and new COVID-19 hospital admissions remain low. COVID-19 patients take up just over 1% of local inpatient hospital beds. The state of Colorado reports over 1.3 million cases of COVID-19, along with over 13,000 deaths. 4.8 million people have been tested in Colorado, with overall hospitalizations at around 62,000. 10.6 million vaccines have been administered in the state, and over 4 million Coloradans are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports over 81.2 million cases of COVID-19 and nearly 990,000 deaths nationally. Over 82% of the eligible U.S. population is at least partially vaccinated against COVID-19. Cases are increasing nationally while deaths are steadily decreasing. I'm Kota Babcock, and that's all for Tuesday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the CDC. If you're a student, staff member, or faculty member at CSU, visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. Now we're hearing from Stephen Fonte and the Soylent Green podcast about research in Western Colorado. I'm curious if the farmers that you worked with in Latin America actually showed you a new method of farming that you had not seen before. Well, I think most of the farming methods that I've observed are ones that I hadn't seen before or wasn't completely aware of. And I think, you know, yeah, I definitely became aware of different strategies or different considerations that they're having to deal with. You know, like we often think, for example, about 
contour farming or farming along the contour so you reduce the amount of erosion that happens in a soil. But where I work in Peru, for example, they actually do the opposite. They farm straight up and down a hillside in a lot of places because there's too much moisture at certain times of year and they want, they want to make sure the water runs off. Interesting. Yeah, that so blew my we don't mind. have that problem in Colorado, <laughs> but in some places, I mean, yeah, maybe there's a better way to do it. But I was really surprised that that's the way that worked the best for them. Yeah, and they've tried sense. it, you know, obviously, because when they didn't do that and they tried to, you know, someone came along and told them they should be, you know, using along the contour, then they had all sorts of disease and, you know, potato wilt or whatever on there. Right. Too much wow. moisture yeah. too much and moisture. rot, I'm sure. What are you researching currently? I'm working on a lot of different things right now. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm very much, uh, I, I've kept my sort of ecologist badge and, you know, try to understand the whole system. So I'm working on lots of different things. But my general theme of my work is trying to understand the multifunctionality of agricultural systems. So obviously, I'm measuring yield and profit that's coming off a system because that's really determining whether a practice is viable or not. I just wanted to define yield real quick for those that might not know. Basically, it's just the amount of produce or whatever it is that you're growing for a crop. It usually is measured in you know pounds per acre or something like that. But beyond that, we're focusing on a whole range of things like carbon sequestration. You know, there's a lot of talk about that, even another potential source of income there. But then also erosion control, pest control, maintenance of biodiversity, which is a lot of people you know, feel that that has its own inherent value that we need to, to be thinking about. And so there's a whole range of services provided by agri-ecosystems that we should be you know, considering as performance metrics, whereas a lot of the world just focuses on yield and profit. And while that is probably the most important one to consider, because without that, the system wouldn't exist, we really should be thinking about all these other ones. And in some cases, like with carbon sequestration, there's been a lot of talk about subsidizing that. And right. you know, there are examples of farmers or communities subsidizing other services related to water regulation, water flow regulation, and things like that. I'm just curious, how would they measure the amount of carbon sequestered in those systems to get those incentives? I think a lot of it comes from experiments that are done on farm and at research stations where they're able to test a certain practice out for, you know, 10, 20 years. And they're able to say either comparing baseline versus 20 years later or comparing, you know, the standard practice versus the alternative carbon storing practice and being able to say that like, oh, this practice stores so many more tons of carbon per, per acre. How do they get the money to those people? <laughs> Somebody just write a check for them? <laughs> So there are some different voluntary programs that like companies will pay into, like big company, say McDonald's or something will say like, oh, we want to be carbon neutral. One way is to invest in alternative energy sources. Another way is to invest in places that are planting trees and forests. But then soil carbon is a little trickier. It's a little harder to measure, as you were asking. But we are getting better through experimentation and through modeling exercises as well mm. of having a good idea of how much you can actually store. and so. Through that, those companies invest or, or show their investment in global warming mitigation or invested money can make their way down to farmers. But it's not well established in the U.S. It's perhaps further along in Europe. Do you think there's such a thing as like net zero emissions from agriculture? Yeah, that's tricky. I mean, you have to think about not just the fluxes coming in and out of the soil of, of say, carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide. I think we can definitely have soils that are net zero or, or even you know net sequestering but then with agriculture you have to think sort of more of a life cycle analysis approach where you think about the fuel that's used by the tractors right, transportation. and the energy that goes into producing fertilizers and 
So when you bring all that into account, then you have to have a soil at least that is potentially sequestering a lot of carbon or really reducing nitrous oxide emissions to account for all that. So I think it's possible, but it's... It's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> hard to achieve. Sure. I mean, people need food. So agriculture is always going to be a part of our society as a globe. So how can we make it most efficient and maybe less wasteful <laughs> and more resilient? That's kind of what we're all working on, essentially. That's the million dollar question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> Well, I was going to say I came into college here with some preconceived notions like an organic fertilizer bad. But the more I've looked into it, I'm like, well, in and of itself, is it that bad if you need to like use it to amend some soil or to restore an area? Maybe it's necessary in some cases. But I think what I've come to learn is that it's more the overuse of these inorganic fertilizers is the real problem. So how would we go about ag in the future? If we were trying to like reduce that, I mean, what would it look like? We're trying to reduce inputs. What's your utopian (laughs) agricultural system? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the technological answer is precision ag, right? Mm. Where we are better able to evaluate soil and plant needs per meter basis and apply the exact amount there so that we're not over applying in some places and under applying in others. But I think... In general, there's a lot of things that we can do by under, better understanding the turnover of, of different organic sources of nutrients that are in the soil, whether it be from soil organic matter or residues. And then if we understood that better, we would have a better sense of how much fertilizer we need to apply to really meet plant demands without exceeding it too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without putting on so much that it runs off. And because once you put it on right away, not all of it's available. Some of it runs off, some of it volatilizes and goes into the air as gas. So there's a lot of loss pathways that are introduced immediately. There's a lot of loss pathways and, and they all become exponentially problematic when you apply more fertilizer than a plant needs. Mm-hmm. I just want to give a quick explanation of volatilization for those who might not know. It's essentially when you put a chemical on the ground, an organic fertilizer, especially in a liquid form, water will evaporate. It will also change chemically and turn into a gas and then leave the system that way. So that's one example of a loss pathway. Another is erosion from water or wind, and certain chemicals are lost in ways that others are not. Like phosphorus doesn't typically go wind-bound, but more is is runoff through uh, erosion, like water erosion, or leaches out, which means that it goes through the soil and into the water table or something like that. Can you define precision ag for maybe some people listening who don't know? Generally, the idea with precision ag, and we usually think of it as tractors that have either modeled soil fertility previously or they have a sensor on them that correlated something with, say, nitrogen availability. And as they're driving over a particular field, they're able to monitoring the plant color, for example, to know the nitrogen content or, or demand of that plant. And as they're doing that, they can specially, you know, change the rate of fertilizer they're applying higher or lower, depending on on the plant's needs. And that's typically, we think of precision agriculture as, you know, fertilizer application. It can also be seeding rate that changes with, say, moisture availability, or, or it can even be water application in some cases. Some examples of the newest technologies emerging in precision ag include cloud-controlled, fully autonomous tractors, real-time mobile device analytics, remote monitored and controlled irrigation systems, wireless sensors that detect water availability, soil fertility, leaf temperatures, local climate data, and insect infestation, as well as disease and weed pressure. Well, we usually think of it as this very technological thing where you have to buy a half million dollar tractor in order to apply it. But really, I think a lot of what I work with smaller farmers in the developing world is you know, I mentioned they have very heterogeneous farms where one field's really fertile and then the next field's very poor. 
And so we're looking at ways to help them measure those fields and to better target their management practices on a per field or even subfield basis. And in a sense, that's, you know, that's precision agriculture. It's just at a different scale and a lot less technologically advanced. Farmers but, code too. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> So to back out of this farming conversation that we're going through, I want to know what's your favorite part of your job? That's a good question. I think I have a couple favorite parts. So I like my job. It's, it's, it's a good job. It's a lot of work. I wish I did a little less, but I generally like all that I do. But I think my favorite part is interacting with students, particularly seeing my grad students and undergraduate students <laughs> grow and develop and learn and gain new skills. And for me, that's really rewarding and exciting just to see them and to get to know these people. I also enjoy traveling and getting to see new places and talk with farmers around the world and understand different cultures. Haven't been doing so much of that in the last few years with COVID, but hope to be doing it soon. <laughs> and I think just thinking about new questions, ecological questions or that apply to agriculture, to soils and ways that we can tease apart, you know, different principles so that we can better manage our soils. And so I think that's a really fun part of my job. Maybe I don't get to do that as much as I would like to. Yeah, I think probably the most valuable thing that I got out of going back to school was just the networking and talking to experts in their field and learning from them. And it's interesting because there's not so much of like a divide in expertise because everyone has their own expertise. Being in secondary education is more like having a conversation and then having similar passions and curiosities and cool things form out of that, like this podcast or, <laughs> you know, farming modeling. It's kind of like a place where brains come together and it's not so much about the grades. <laughs> no, not at My all. My high school teachers were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say what's on the horizon for ag systems? Like how are we moving towards reducing climate impact but improving production efficiency? Well, let me pull out my crystal ball and I'll tell you exactly how we're going to figure all that out. No, I mean, that's a really complex question and yeah. there's obviously no silver bullet there or we would have figured it out already, hopefully. Yeah. So I think... I think maybe we touched on some of it with precision ag and you know reducing inputs and things like that. And really making sure that all the research that we're doing at universities, that we are constantly consulting with the actual practitioners, the farmers that are doing it. You know, make sure we're studying relevant things that can actually be applied and will actually impact their lives and can allow them to farm better. So, Speaking of, uh, could you maybe go into a little detail about uh, one of the projects that you're working on in your lab right now? Yeah, that's a good question. I know you you're working to, uh, on one uh, that I, I helped with a little bit, dealing with cover crops in dryland agriculture. So these are agricultural systems where they don't use irrigation. And this is mostly in southwest Colorado, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's a cool project where I was actually continued it on from someone else that retired before me. But it was really cool in the sense that Farmers down in Southwest Colorado actually went to the Southwest Colorado Research Center at the time and said, you know, we're having a lot of problems with soil degradation. Our soils are blowing away because it's a very dry area. It's fairly high elevation. It's like six, seven thousand feet. And they were desperate for solutions. And they had you know, heard about cover crops. But again, you know, it's a big risk to try cover crops. There's there's a lot of trade offs there potentially. So they went to researchers there at CSU and basically said, we want to study this, but we can't afford to take that risk. Can you work with us to apply for some funding? So this is funding through the USDA program of Western SARE, so okay. Sustainable Agriculture Research Education part of USDA. And so we together, you know, with their support, applied for funding from the Western SARE. 
and we're able to conduct research both at the research center where we are able to look at a lot more different factors like interactions of different types of cover crops and tillage and everything. But as well, we also tried it on all of these farmers fields and set up experiments in their fields where we tried more simple mixture of cover crops versus not you know, what they were doing traditionally to look at the impacts on yields and soil properties and allow them to make better decisions in the future to see like, well, maybe I lose a little yield, but if it's improving my soil and in the long run, I might be better off, then it could be worthwhile. And that's, yeah. Yeah. So that type of research is really cool in the sense that it's really farmer driven. What cover uh, crop did best in the dryland system? I'm really curious. Took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. So we tried a bunch of different mixtures. So it wasn't any one particular cover sure. crop and they tried a bunch of different ones in early years. Yeah, and it depends every year, right? Like yeah, I guess some there's... years they grew really well if there was moisture and some years the cover crops hardly grew at all. Sure. So yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. I heard that some legumes, some beans do well in those kind of arid systems and maybe some sorghum, right? So sorghum's often grown as, you know, for grain or for forage in the systems. It is grown in some places as a cover crop. I think I haven't seen it so much around in Colorado. And obviously farmers are really interested in growing legumes because they're fixing nitrogen, and, right. which is our most limiting nutrient for plant growth. Sure. But legumes are hard. The seeds tend to be pretty large mm -hmm. and it's expensive to plant them at high densities and to actually oh. get a good stand of legumes. Interesting. And so really the, and the species that actually tend to do better are a lot of different types of grasses. There'd be oats or triticale or, you know, a bunch of different things. Sure. Is that because they were like historically what grew out here was mostly just grasses? I mean, there were Certainly some native legumes as well. But yeah, I think my guess is that grasses in general are faster growing and not, not always, but right. and have a more prolific root system, a fibrous root system that's able to access water better. Yeah. So grasses typically do a lot better, but they don't fix nitrogen. And so it's always a balance of providing enough of this expensive legume seed that it's able to compete with the grasses a bit and get some of that benefit. Hmm. I didn't realize uh, legumes were so cost prohibitive. Again, it depends on it, but on which legume we're talking about. But yeah, yeah. you think yeah. most of them, you know, like winter pea or whatever, they have fairly large seeds. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. Do you have any interesting macrofauna facts that you can give us? Levi yeah. might have some ideas after taking my soil <laughs> ecology class. And nematodes. Oh, <laughs> But yeah. I don't know if they really count as macrofauna. They're not macrofauna, oh, but, yeah. you know, I, I dabble in nematodes a little bit. Who doesn't? Um, who doesn't? Literally <laughs> everyone. <laughs> okay, well... Since I've been focusing on earthworms a lot, I might as well just go with it. We love so earthworms here. the longest or the largest earthworm in the world yeah. is in Australia. Some of them have been measured over 11 feet long. No. It's true. I've seen pictures. <laughs> oh, They're my monsters. God. Where else? There's actually quite a few not really well identified species, as far as I know, of earthworms. Just a little bit lower elevation of where I work in the Andes. And I've come across one before and I've seen pictures where earthworms are almost as big around as like my wrist and they're maybe Crazy. three to four feet long. I had no idea. That's so cool. <laughs> I know I want one. I want one. one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. Those are kind of fun facts. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That is exactly what I was looking for. Okay. So of course I had to look this one up. So the earthworm that Steve is referring to is called the Gippsland earthworm. This now protected species is found in parts of Victoria, Australia. They have relatively long lifespans for invertebrates and could take five years to reach maturity. They breed in the warmer months and produce egg capsules. When these worms hatch in 12 months, they are around 20 centimeters or 7.9 inches long at birth. Unlike most earthworms, which deposit castings on the surface, 
These guys spend almost all their time in burrows. They are usually very sluggish, and when they move rapidly through their burrows, it can cause an audible gurgling or sucking sound, which allows them to be detected above ground. Yes, you can search this noise on YouTube. Gippsland earthworm colonies are small and isolated, and the species' low reproductive rates and slow maturation make those small populations very vulnerable, especially with increasing agricultural practices in the area. You can often learn sort of through osmosis by working with professors or students, but then often there's other opportunities to go to lab meetings and, and things like that. So I think that's a good strategy. Yeah, get involved. If you are a college student, go join clubs, go talk to your professors. That's what this experience is all about. And remember, websites like Wikipedia and ThoughtCo are great starting points, but <laughs> sometimes that's not always the best way to go. <laughs> And I would encourage a lot of students here at CSU, and especially those that are interested in agriculture, but maybe don't have a lot of experience in it, but, you know, are passionate. I'm raising my to, hand in the studio to, right now. <laughs> <laughs> to go and get some real on-farm experience and, and oh, try yeah. to do an internship with farmers or volunteer somewhere or, or something. Because I feel like there you get taken away from our idealistic view of, of what, what's going on. At, yeah, totally. Find out what the real problems and, are. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Figure out what's really driving their decisions. And I think that's kind of the premise for this podcast is like, you might have an interest in agriculture or doing environmental research, food systems, but it's such a multifaceted discipline that no matter what you're interested in, I think that there's a spot for you. So um, absolutely. I mean, I'd come from a non-ag background at all. Grew up in the suburbs of Florida and here I am studying this stuff, <laughs> getting as much exposure as I can wherever I can. I worked in Steve's lab for a short time, and that was hugely beneficial, a really nice experience. And I'd, I guess I'd just say the same as <laughs> Alyssa. <laughs> Find what you're nerdy about. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for coming in and talking to us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we learned a lot about earthworms, and I'm going to provide more information on those if I can find any. <laughs> Speaking of poop. <laughs> yeah, more poop stuff. Earthworms have the best poop. <laughs> yeah, my, my pleasure to come in and share about uh, all the critters in the soil and you know how we can better manage our systems to benefit them and all the great things they do for our farms and food production. Exactly. Let's work together. Indeed. We're a part of the system. Well, thank you so much, Steve. We appreciate you coming in. Thanks for having me. Until next time, folks. to bring you a variety of music from all over the world every Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. 
I'm Cutta Babcock for KCSU News, and you're listening to National News for Tuesday. A leaked draft of a Supreme Court decision shows that the high court voted to overturn both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward from Politico report that the documents were leaked to Politico with a drafted opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito. In the draft, he says, quote, It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives, end quote. Throughout the draft, Alito describes medically trained abortion providers as abortionists, a term that typically is not even used by conservative justices due to a lack of neutrality. The draft continues to include claims that say the cases protecting abortion have had weak arguments in the past. This is the first time a draft of a Supreme Court decision has been accessible to the public while the case was still technically pending. In other news, the Supreme Court sided with a Christian civic organization after Boston rejected a request to fly their flag outside of City Hall. Melissa Quinn from CBS News reports that the ruling was delivered by Justice Stephen Breyer. The court unanimously said that the city of Boston violated the First Amendment in rejecting the request from the organization. Online justices sided with Harold Shirtleff, the director of Camp Constitution. The city of Boston rejected Shirtless request to fly a Christian flag in 2017, as the city was concerned that displaying the flag, which represents the Christian community, would be a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Prior to 2017, Boston allowed the Christian organization to fly their flag multiple times. A trial court affirmed the city of Boston's decision, along with the first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Since the city of Boston's flag selection largely represented private interests and the city was not said to be meaningfully involved in the process of it, the Supreme Court sided with Shirtleff and Camp Constitution, who argue that, quote, the city's refusal to allow them to raise their flag violated their free speech rights, end quote. The United States Environmental Protection Agency finalized their mandate on biofuel blending for White House review. Stephanie Kelly from Reuters reports that the proposed rule was originally released in December, which sets a requirement on how many gallons of oil and biofuels are required. The role is part of the APA's effort on the U.S. renewable fuel standards. The proposed role awaiting White House approval sets volumes for renewable fuels at about 18.5 billion gallons for 2021 and around 20.75 billion gallons for 2022, a decrease from 2019's almost 20 billion gallon estimate. The oil and biofuel industries have been awaiting the numbers associated with this role for months. The White House received the role this week based on a posted notice from the Office of Management and Budget. The American Academy of Pediatrics plans to abandon guidance on health and medicine that they feel is based on race. Lindsay Tanner from the Associated Press reports that the beginning of AAP's re-examination of treatment recommendations came as the United States began reckoning with race after George Floyd's murder in 2020, as doctors within the organization felt that black children were being undertreated for conditions. Other organizations, such as the American Medical Association, took similar actions in recent years to ensure equitable health care recommendations. The AAP's revision on newborn jaundice is planned for this summer. Dr. Joseph Wright, who's spearheading the writing of improved recommendations, said that the current recommendations suggest that jaundice risk in newborns can be partially determined by race. In 2021, AAP retired a guidance calculation which suggested that black children were less likely to get urinary infections. As the claim had been unproven, and could lead to misdiagnosis or undertreatment for urinary issues in black children. Doctors from around the country believe that retiring policies such as these two prevents doctors from unintentionally harming pediatric patients and proves intention in correcting wrongs done by the organization. The congressional panel handling the January 6th investigation asked three House Republicans to testify. 
Claudia Grisales from National Public Radio reports that Representatives Mo Brooks from Alabama, Andy Biggs from Arizona, and Ronnie Jackson from Texas were asked to volunteer themselves to the panel. The three men are being asked to discuss their text messages with former President Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who previously submitted his own text messages to the panel in 2021. Brooks' texts are of specific interest after he fell out with the former president recently. Trump withdrew his endorsement of Brooks, and in response, Brooks released a statement which alleged the former president pressured him to support his peers in working to overturn the 2020 presidential election's results. Three Republican representatives were requested to appear prior to the current request for Brooks, Brooks, Biggs, and Jackson's appearances, and all three declined to appear. House Republicans Kevin McCarthy, Scott Perry, and Jim Jordan declined, with McCarthy declining based on his belief that the panel wants to damage political opponents rather than investigate the attack. McCarthy said of the request, quote, It wants to interview me about public statements that have been shared with the world and private conversations not remotely related to the violence that unfolded at the Capitol. I have nothing else to add, end quote. Brooks is expected to appear before the panel based on his falling out with Trump, but it is unclear whether or not the two other representatives will as well, based on previous precedent. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News. Now we're going to hear from Anton Schindler about the legacy of segregated baseball teams. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 49 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. In last week's episode, we covered a very brief history of the Negro Leagues and talked about the various leagues, the names, and the teams that came out of it over the 130 or so year history. I realized just how brief that episode was, and I felt I would be doing a disservice to the history of the Negro Leagues if I didn't go over some of the incredible talent that filled the league and made it as special as it was during the golden era of the league. So, in this week's episode of Painting the Corners, we're going to go over some of the best and most influential players that define the Negro Leagues and made their way into the history books when the MLB finally integrated the records into the MLB records. So let's get started. Now, as I mentioned in last week's episode, of the 3,400 athletes that played in the Negro Leagues in its long history, 37 of them have made their way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So, we'll focus primarily on those 37 players. Let's start with Bud Fowler, one of the newest inductees into the Hall of Fame, when he and Buck O'Neill were inducted by the Early Baseball Era Committee in 2022. One of Fowler's big claims to fame is being the earliest known African-American player in organized professional baseball, as he made his first appearance on an all-white professional baseball team based out of Newcastle, Pennsylvania in 1872. At the time, Fowler was just 14 years old. Fowler would jump between various other teams throughout his career, including the Keokuk Hawkeyes, where he quickly became one of the most popular players on the team. By 1894, Fowler joined the newly formed Page Fence Giants, where he primarily played second base and right field. By the end of his career, Fowler either played for or was a manager for the Page Fence Giants the Cuban Giants, the Smoky City Giants, the All-American Black Tourists, and the Kansas City Stars. So, if you're keeping track, that means that Fowler was not only a pitcher, but an infielder, an outfielder, and eventually a manager. He was a man of many hats, and according to his teammates, 
A good ball player, a hard worker, a genius on the ball field, intelligent, gentlemanly in his conduct, and deserving of the good opinion entertained for him by baseball admirers. Fowler played for 10 seasons in organized baseball, a record for any African-American player until Jackie Robinson broke it in his final season with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Unfortunately, there aren't really any stats on Fowler, as he played well before a lot of the sports records were starting to be recorded. But reading through some of the stories about this player makes me think that he was a truly incredible player, both on and off of the field. The next player is often referred to as the greatest pitcher the Negro Leagues ever saw and also one of the most popular players to ever come out of the Negro Leagues, which is a 6-foot, 3-inch right-hander from Mobile, Alabama, in Satchel Page. Now, there has been a lot of talk if Page really was the best pitcher in the league, but I think everyone can agree, at least, that he's always the one that other pitchers are compared to. You see, not only did Page have an electric fastball that came and went in the blink of an eye, but he also had command better than anyone had ever seen. Page played in professional baseball for 21 years, 15 of which were in the Negro Leagues. He made his major league debut at the age of 41 for the Cleveland Indians in 1948 and finished the season with 6 wins and a loss and an almost unhittable 248 ERA. Looking at the stats, it's very easy to see why Page, much like many of the others on this list, made it so easily into the Hall of Fame. Page had an ERA below 2 five times in his career, and an ERA below 3 16 times in his career. He led the league in strikeouts six times, and finished his career with 121 wins, 81 losses, and a very impressive 2.70 ERA. In 1952 and 1953, Page was selected to the All-Star Game at the age of 45 and 46, and in 1952, at 45 years old, he came in 17th place in the MVP voting when he went 12-10 with a 3.07 ERA and 35 games finished in his time with the St. Louis Browns. Page was really something special out on the mound. Some other pitchers that are often compared to Page are Smokey Joe Williams, who was a hard-throwing righty, who also made the Hall of Fame, by the way, I think primarily because of that incredible fastball that he had, and Bullet Joe Rogan, another Hall of Famer who was known for his near-on unhittable curveball. Another Hall of Famer that came out of the league is the great Josh Gibson, who was primarily a catcher in his time with the Pittsburgh Crawfords and Homestead Grays. Unlike Page, Gibson retired before the major leagues were integrated. However, that does not discount the kind of player that Gibson was. He has been compared to the Cincinnati Reds legend Johnny Bench as having many similar qualities, but having a better bat. Gibson had a career 374 batting average, winning the batting title three times and the Triple Crown twice. The slugger led all of the Negro Leagues in home runs, RBIs, and slugging percentage six years in a row. 
he was a hitting machine really throughout his entire career. I mean, he hit over 400 three times in his career and never had a season where he hit below a 317 batting average. That is insane. Gibson was known for getting on base, making clutch hits, and advancing runners every time he stepped into the right-hand batter's box. And I think it's pretty easy to say that he played a massive role in 1943 and 1944 when he had 11 combined hits, 4 RBIs, and a 296 postseason batting average in the two World Series that he won with the Homestead Grays. It is said that Gibson had around 800 home runs in his professional career, 38 more than Barry Bonds. This number would have made him the new king of home runs. However, the MLB claims that not all of those home runs were official, quote-unquote. So, what gives? Well, you see, Seamheads.com, a baseball statistics site primarily focused on the Negro Leagues, went searching for and finding official box scores from Negro League games, and through the work that continues still to this day, and even though they probably can't find everything, Gibson's official total at present stands at 238 home runs. To me, it kind of seems like there were a lot of home runs that could have come in a lot of like unofficial exhibition-type games, or in these barnstorming games that we talked a little bit about in last week's episode. So, there really is a good chance that Gibson did hit 800 or 900 home runs in his career, but there really isn't any good way to tell. Unfortunately, it's just too unverifiable of a stat, seeing how there were so many of these exhibition, barnstorming-type games that happened during this era. But regardless... That does not take away from the unreal career and talent that that Georgia native had up at the plate. Another player that joined the MLB soon after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier is the first African-American player to ever join the American League in Larry Dobby. Larry Dobby was primarily a second baseman and all-around infielder in his time with the Newark Eagles and the Negro National League. But in his time with the Cleveland Indians, the Chicago White Sox, and the Detroit Tigers in the MLB, he was an outstanding outfielder, thanks to his pretty good speed and ability to track down the baseball. Not only that, but Dobby was an incredible hitter. In his 17-year career, Dobby spent 14 years in the major leagues and collected 1,697 hits and 273 home runs to complement his 288 batting average. Larry Dobby was a nine-time All-Star, seven of which came in the MLB, and he was considered for an MVP award four times, getting second place in the MVP voting in 1954, coming short to one of the Yankees Hall of Famers, Yogi Berra. So, not bad company there. Dobby was part of three World Series championships, of which he helped to win two. With the Newark Eagles, Dobby had five hits, a triple, a home run, five RBIs, and three stolen bases in the seven-game World Series win against the Kansas City Monarchs, finishing the series with a .227 batting average. In 1948, with the Cleveland Indians, Larry had seven hits, a double, a home run, 
two RBIs, and a 318 batting average that helped push the Indians to their second World Series championship over the Boston Braves. As a matter of fact, Dobby and his then-teammate Satchel Paige were the first African-American players to win a World Series championship after winning 111 games and an AL pennant. The same year, he was awarded the AL's RBI leader and home run champion. Not bad for the future Hall of Famer, as he was inducted into Cooperstown in 1998 by the Veterans Committee. Finally, I want to talk about Oscar Charleston, who is commonly known now as the Willie Mays of his day. Now, to be coupled with a name like that, like Willie Mays, is a pretty big deal. And Charleston was a big deal. Charleston played for 18 seasons in the various Negro League divisions for seven different teams, spending the most time with the Pittsburgh Crawfords, who would later change their name to the Toledo Crawfords in 1939. Much like many of the other players on this list, Charleston was an elite, skilled, and talented hitter. So talented, in fact, that he won the batting title three times and the Triple Crown along with them. At one point in his career, Charleston had a 433 batting average with a 512 on base percentage and an OPS well over 1.2, literally video game numbers from the then 24-year-old outfielder. Much like Gibson, Charleston had three seasons with a batting average over 400 and 13 seasons with a batting average over 300. All of this impressive hitting earned Charleston a career 364 batting average, thanks to his 2,034 hits, 211 home runs, and 1,319 RBIs. And, according to Seamheads.com, Charleston had 367 stolen bases, the most by any Negro leaguer at the time. And the incredible thing, he was only caught stealing three times. That is, if you're wondering, a 99.18% success rate on stealing bases. (laughs) Even the all-time stolen base leader from the MLB, Ricky Henderson, had a 80.75 success rate stealing bases. I mean, that is unreal. And just to put that into perspective, Ricky Henderson was less successful at stealing bases than Charleston was. This just goes to show how Charleston was such a big threat in both the batter's box and on the base paths. Charleston, too, was inducted into the Negro League Hall of Fame in 1976 and is currently recognized by the National Baseball Hall of Fame today. Now, as you can imagine, I am only scratching the surface of the incredible talent that came from the Negro Leagues, especially when the league was in its golden era from 1920 to 1932. It's been an absolute joy to learn about these athletes and what they were going through throughout the entirety of the league's history and reading some of the stories that have come from it. It's also been, as you can imagine, Quite a challenge getting these podcasts trimmed down to a decent length because, as I believe I mentioned in last week's episode, I could talk about this topic 
and baseball in general for hours and hours. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, there are 37 Hall of Famers that came out of the Negro Leagues. And that's not to mention the other 3,363 players that also played in the Negro Leagues during its long history. The Negro Leagues is just such a goldmine of fantastic stories of people playing and enjoying the sport of baseball. It's such a rich history, a finely woven tapestry, if you will, based primarily on the love of baseball and fulfilling the passion to play baseball, no matter the political and social challenges that these athletes were going through. It's been a truly inspiring experience to research everything that I possibly could about the Negro Leagues, and I'm excited to learn more and more about this era of baseball and the era that truly changed the game we know today forever. Thank you for listening. What's up? It's DJ Jazzy Jack here to bring you all things sports, highlighting the NFL and NBA every Sunday morning from 9 to 11. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In women's softball, the team is now 17-23, and 23, winning all three of their games against Nevada at home this weekend. They will be playing against UNLV this weekend in Vegas. In track and field, the team ended their regular season at the Fresno State Invitational. They took a couple first-place finishes and many podium finishes. They are taking part in the Mountain West Tournament this week. In women's golf, the team took 8th out of 9 in the Mountain West Championship, and in men's golf, they took 2nd place in the Mountain West Championship. In the NFL Draft, Trey McBride was picked at the end of the 2nd round by the Arizona Cardinals, and Ray Stonehouse was picked up in free agency by the Tennessee Titans after the draft. My name is Eliza Drotart. This has been your RMR Sports Report. Hey, pod lovers, if you're joining for the first time, welcome. The Mastercast is a podcast recommendation show that brings you a brand new non-spoiler binge-worthy review every week of some of the best podcasts and a short and sweet two to three minute summary on everything you could want to know from the number of hosts to on average how long you can expect each episode to be. New episodes come out every Monday. You can find the week's other reviews on the show's socials on Instagram at the Mastercast and Twitter at Mastercast Pods. I'm your host, Marie, and this week I'm bringing you a review on Like A Version. This weekly music podcast is actually a recorded segment that is performed live on Australian radio station Triple J. It was created by Mel Bampton for his show Mel in the Morning in 2004. Every set has artists, both international and local, play two songs, one of their own and a cover of someone else's, in their own style. It's similar to BBC's Radio 1 Live Lounge sets, and Irish Today FM's even better than the real thing. The name is also said to be a play on Like a Version, Madonna's 1984 album. Originally, these performances were acoustic, but since then, the style has developed to include all sorts of music. 
The show's wide popularity has led to CDs as well as some of the covers making it onto Triple J's Hottest 100. It's also a podcast on the most popular podcast players, but a playlist on Spotify. While most sets can be found on Triple J's website as well as their YouTube channel, the online archive doesn't go back farther than August 2006. Like most cover songs, you have to take the good with the bad. While there are some incredibly well-done ones, there are also some misfires. I enjoy when bands really try to cover a song in their own style, instead of as close as they can to the original. It is like a version after all. Apple Podcast has 4.6 stars and 32 ratings. So far, there are 577 episodes currently available, with new ones coming out every Thursday. And on average, they last about 20 minutes. Altel's most popular isn't working for the podcast, but my favorites are almost too hard to pick. I adore Church's cover of Kendrick Lamar's Love. Their Do I Wanna Know cover is also amazing. And Meg Mack's Let It Happen, originally done by Tame Impala. Those are just two of the many stunning songs. Seriously, all worth checking out, but again, some are better than others. No swears for this one, but the natures of the songs can vary. Side note, Triple J also does another brilliant segment called Bars of Steel that features rappers and is worth checking out. I recommend A Girl Set. Similar pods include Tiny Desk Concerts, Live Lounge Uncovered, and Headliners. Alright guys, that's all for this week, but remember if you want to see the cover art, sources, or written transcript for the episode, be sure to check out the show notes, or kcsufm.com. There you could tell us if you have music you would like to be played on the show, or submit a podcast to be recommended. You can also send us an email at themastercastpodlist at gmail.com. This week's music was done by Colorado Springs artist Violet Wish, which is a song from Violet Wish's soon-to-be-released debut album, Long Distance, set to come out May 28th. You can find them on SoundCloud and Bandcamp at Violet Wish and on Instagram at Violet underscore Wish underscore music. Their contact will also be in the show notes as well. Remember to share the show with the pod lovers in your life and tune in next Monday. Thanks for listening. This is Ellie Shannon with your tech news. Google is now offering a new tool that allows people to remove personal information from search results. Anyone who doesn't want their phone number, email, or street address and other personal information to be found online can have it stripped from search results, according to Bill Chappelle of NPR News. Whoever wants to remove this info can submit a special request. The request asks for things like the URL of any web pages displaying your personal data, along with the search terms and URL of the Google search you use to find those pages. Sending screenshots in is also recommended. The protection of personal information comes six months after Google made another change to allow minors or their caregivers to request their images to be removed from its search results. 
Russian troops in the occupied city of Melitopol have stolen all the equipment from a John Deere dealership. The stolen equipment was shipped over 700 miles to Chechnya, but the equipment was then locked remotely, making it inoperable. There's been a growing number of reports of Russian troops stealing farm equipment, grain, and even building materials, according to Alexander Filipov and Tim Lister of CNN News. The removal of valuable agricultural equipment from a John Deere dealership speaks to an increasingly organized operation, one that even uses Russian military transport as part of the heist. For now, the equipment has not moved from Chechnya. Facebook is shutting down its podcast platform less than a year after it launched. Creators will be unable to upload new shows to the service as of this week, and the platform will close altogether on June 3rd, according to James Vincent of The Verge. The company is also shuttering the site's soundbites and audio hubs and integrating its live streaming live audio rooms feature into its broader Facebook Live suite. After a year of experimentation, Facebook decided it's not a good option. Thanks for listening to my tech news updates. Now, let's hear the weather. Today was cool and rainy with a high in the low 60s and a low around 40 degrees. Wednesday cools down even more with a high just under 60 degrees with a low of 40 degrees with mostly cloudy skies. Moving into Thursday, expect temperatures to warm up with a high of around 70 degrees and a low in the mid-40s with mostly sunny skies. And for Friday, tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon for the Rocky Mountain Review only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Coda Babcock for KCSU News, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David Demuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, Glendon Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Bandell, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you.